Astronomy Cast, Episode 537 The Reusable Rocket Revolution. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today, and with me, as always, Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. Uh, welcome back from hiatus. I know. Summer over. It, Time to get back to work. It was too short. I yeah. want more summer. Well, of course, neither of us actually did anything that even res marginally resembles vacations. Um, uh, I doubled the amount of Guide to Space videos that we were putting out every week and then went and climbed a bunch of mountains. <laughs> And and I have been doing a daily news stream over on Twitch, which became a daily podcast starting this week. And oh, we mapped 10 million objects on an asteroid. Yeah, that's crazy. It really uh, is. What an, an, in, uh, what an incredible accomplishment. Uh, Nate, you foolishly signed up, uh, you and a few thousand of your friends, to map out the features of asteroid Bennu. How hard could it be? It's just a ball of rock. Turns out it's not a ball of rock. It's a loose amalg amalgamation of gravel and has a lot of rocks. And you guys mapped that hard. We mapped it so hard. And I yep. think it mapped us back. I don't know. Yeah. So now, uh, how, is there like a final count of how many rocks are on the surface of that? We're, we're still in the process. So here's the thing. We were not expecting this much stuff. And because we had anticipated oh, our database is only going to be this big, we read all of our software without putting in all the needed extras you put in. If you have super large data that you have to page through a bit at a time to prevent getting timeout errors. Now, our software started triggering timeout errors. And we're still in the process of rewriting all the bits that need to be rewritten to deal with um, not medium-sized data, but medium-large-sized data. Uh, I'm not going to call this big data because nowadays there's like terabytes of databases that are being generated yeah. per day. We're, yeah. we're not there, but we are at the uh, hundreds of megabytes per day. But are, are we safe to say that it was in the millions of yes. individual features that were identified on Bennu? Yes. I mean, have there been objects like is even Mars or the moon that well, that number of objects identified? Not, not at this scale size. Yeah. So I don't know of any object that is consistently marked at this high a resolution. Even Earth isn't mapped at this kind of a resolution. Yeah. 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 So so it's it's kind of terrifying. It's it's just a rubble pile, a loosely held to go yeah. together rubble pile. And we now know all the boulders on the rubble pile, all yeah. of them personally. What an amazing accomplishment. Congratulations to everybody. If you're listening to this and you were uh, dragged into this uh, amazing accomplishment over the summer, uh, what a wonderful thing for science. And I can't wait to see what you guys take on next. And, but it's just tremendous. And what I'm really looking forward to is confirming the names of everyone who marked yeah. those areas where we will be looking to do site sample selection. Incredible. 
All right, let's uh, let's get on to our to our work. So we took a hiatus this summer, but SpaceX sure didn't with the tests of the Star Hopper prototype. Today we're going to talk about the revolution in reusable rocketry and the quest to build a fully reusable two-stage rocket. All right, Pamela. So were you watching some of the live streams over the summer of the Starhopper prototype? Yeah, I, I unfortunately am one of those people that kept turning it on on the days they did absolutely nothing. So it turned yeah. out a watch Starhopper never hops. Oh, it, it's your fault. It's my fault. But yeah, when yeah. I wasn't looking. It did hop. And it did it in the most glorious of ways because being SpaceX, they like... Think about things like, oh, it's the golden hour. The lighting will be perfect. We shall put our drones that take the video yeah. over here and catch it from the most artistic angle possible. Yeah. So these are like visually stunning, um, albeit with a fuel mixture that was a little bit off. But uh, yeah, this was just amazing. All right. So uh, I was able to watch the the short hop test live and then I missed the full the full 100 plus meter one, but uh, it, it just, you know, you really feel like you're watching history get made, watching, I mean, who knew water towers could fly? Exactly, right? exactly. It, it's a whole new way to treat your farm equipment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, grain elevators next. Um, all right, so let's let's go back and talk about the, about why this is important. Why this? Why is this important? Why is this a thing that people are trying to do? What's wrong with the rockets from the days of yore? We used to have a Saturn V. It took us to the moon, and that was fine. Well, it turns out it takes time and costs money to build those rockets. And every time you don't reuse it, you're requiring a whole bunch of people to build something new from scratch. And you're increasing the cost per pound that you have to spend to get that stuff into space if you can reuse anything each bit that you reuse means you don't have to pay for it again a second time and you don't have to wait for it to be constructed so the the dream was to get us to that well airplane kind of a future where just like boeing doesn't usually throw out its planes every time you fly them once and one seven forty seven gets to reuse get reused for decade after decade. Well, it was hoped that well maybe a rocket won't have a decade of experience flying. It'll at least get three, four, five launches before it gets recycled into the giant rocket pile wherever they put those. And Star Trek and various science fiction from the 1950s and stuff. We saw images of rockets. They would land. They would take off again. That was the bold future. Uh, it seemed obvious that that was what would happen. And yet, for some reason, these reusable rockets never came about. They were always destroyed. Every part of the rocket, except for like the little capsule that the people uh, sat inside, um, was burned up in the atmosphere, left to orbit the sun forever. Why did they not go straight to those reusable rockets early on? Well, I mean, put simply, space is hard. But early on, we simply didn't have the computational power to be able to do the fast 
maneuvers that are required of the rocket engines to maintain an upright flight as they come in for a landing. It's only modern computational power that allows the Falcon 9 first stage to come in and land on moving targets like barges and stationary targets like seashores. Now, with the space shuttle, it had been hoped that we'd be able to repurpose more of it than we did. The external tank is just a tank. How hard can that be? The solid rocket boosters, will those burn up? But unfortunately, even there, there is concerns that if we start reusing the engines too much, it's too dangerous for human life. At one point, there was plans with the space shuttle C program, which was never actually flown, that they'd reuse some of those components while carrying uh, cargo that didn't include human beings. Because, well, if you accidentally blow up an AT&T satellite, that sucks for AT&T, but no lives are lost. And even that was just poo-pooed and pushed aside. It was only really with the Ansari X Prize that we saw a motivation put out there of it's time, people. We will reward you money. Go forth. Try this. And it was Scaled Composite that was able to finally win that, although now it, Virgin Galactic, which has purchased Scaled Composite and has moved forward with the reusable space plane component, um, is one of the, well, laggers in the space race to get reusable to be the thing everyone's using. Right. But the and the original X Prize was incredible and exciting, and the but the goal was fairly modest. It was about having a vehicle be able to fly to the edge of space and return and do that twice within two weeks, I think. And but but flying to an altitude of one hundred kilometers is a completely different story from to going to an orbital velocity, which is one thing is flying up high, the other is going sideways 28,000 kilometers an hour, two different orders of magnitude. Yeah. And and this is that Kármán line that so far we've had uh, skilled composites get passed. We've seen Blue Origins get passed with their new Shepard. But only SpaceX has done reusable orbital rockets so far. And what makes these orbital launches so much more difficult is that stage that you're bringing back is reaching a significantly higher altitude, has to carry the fuel it needs to get back, and then maneuver through all the different layers of wind, all the different layers of turbulence in that atmosphere to get back to, well, pretty much its starting point. It's yo-yoing through space. This episode of Astronomy Cast is sponsored by BarkBox. For a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com when you subscribe to a 6 or 12 month plan. I've said this before and I'll say it again. I love BarkBox in a way that has nothing to do with them being our sponsor. I have two Australian Shepherds with two very different sets of likes and dislikes. And BarkBox has high-quality toys and treats to fit their every want and need. My puppy Stella is the household evildoer, and she loves nothing more than shredding toys. And with BarkBox, I can get toys meant to be shred. One of my favorite was a cocoon that came apart to reveal a butterfly. For Eddie, well, he just likes to cuddle. And for him, there are soft, washable toys to love. 
Each themed bark box comes with a couple toys, grain-free treats perfect for training, and a larger, high-quality U.S.-made chew for when you just need your dog to be busy for a few minutes. There is over $40 of doggy goodness in each box. And with a subscription, they start at just $22 each. Once again, for a free extra month of BarkBox, visit BarkBox.com when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. You and your dogs are going to love yourselves for doing this. Uh, so let's talk a bit about how, sort of, how this whole reusable rocketry path is is going to work. And I think, you know, here we are as we're recording this episode, and we've talked about SpaceX many times, but we are sort of planting a flag today, an arbitrary flag and just talking about the history and the future of potential future of reusable rocketry without necessarily knowing how it's all going to going to work out. So but but we've seen enough just mind bending accomplishments so far that I think we feel pretty confident that that things are, are moving in, in the right direction. So like, from where we are, to, like, where are we today at the state of reusable rocketry? How much of a rocket gets reused right now? Currently, we're looking at the first stage, which is the bottommost part of the rocket that expends all of its fuel, and then gets uh, cast aside in most cases, or flown aside and flown back if you happen to be SpaceX. And we're looking at single stage rockets, starting to figure out how can we will bring back our entire thing. So this was the thing that really was like, ooh, we need to start doing a show on this, that, that brought this home to me. The Electron rocket is looking to go reusable. This is a little tiny rocket. They're currently getting launched out of New Zealand. Uh, they are only launching the tiniest of cargoes. And since they don't have all that much extra room, the question starts to become, how do you come back safely? And they don't have it in them. Literally, they don't have the space in them to start to do the retro rockets that you see on the Blue Origin and the SpaceX rockets. So they came up with the creative idea of carrying a parachute with a special side drag and some crazy helicopter pilot is going to be tasked with catching these things as they fall yeah. out of the sky. Well, well, they're not the only one who are considering this approach. Of course, United Launch Alliance, they have the Vulcan rocket, which is going to be their next generation rocket designed to really compete with SpaceX. And it's not going to be fully reusable in the way that that the first stage of the Falcon 9 is. It's going to have these strap-on rocket engines that will peel away from the, the the first stage and they will drift back to earth on parachutes and get caught by helicopters because according to united launch alliance really it's the engines and that whole part of it is the most complicated and expensive and they're going to be using blue origin uh, be4 engines uh, like blue origins uh, new glenn rocket so our it's a sort of a um you know there's there are a bunch of different strategies that are that are going into this some of which are going to be more cost effective than than others but spacex has already demonstrated full reusability of the first stage which what is got to be the most 
it feels like it's the most elegant way, but they're already pushing forward with the Starship. So let's talk about the, what the Starship is going to accomplish. Oh, that's cool. So Kyle Carmichael is saying that catching a parachuting rocket is nothing new. They were catching Corona capsules back in the 1960s, but they weren't boosters, right? They were just ca <clears throat> Now I'm having trouble breathing. They were just uh, capsules, not actual rocket boosters. Like a rocket booster is an enormous machine that weighs many tons. And to catch that as it's plummeting back to earth, you got to think about the, uh, the dynamics and the danger of, of doing that. And if you mess up, then your rocket crashes into the ocean and <laughs> better luck next time. So it, at this point now, like, I don't know about you, Pamela, um, but from my position, like everything else just seems ridiculous compared to what SpaceX is doing with them landing under their own booster. Like everyone thought there were a bunch of different ideas, right? What if they use balloons? What if they use parachutes? What if they, I don't know, if they catch them with an airplane or something, right? But now it's just clear that that this just works. And every model. And um, yeah, um, I was talking with uh, Anton Petrov from uh, uh, What to Math. He's a YouTuber. And he was saying that there are literally now dozens, if not hundreds of rocket companies in China that are pushing forward the whole concept of reusable rocketry. So, so this is the way. And, and not only reusing the, but I asked you about, about Starship. So can you like, if we, you know, put that arbitrary flag in the ground and say, okay, here we are. SpaceX has nailed first stage boosters. The, the Falcon Heavy lets you strap three of those first stage boosters together, reusing a big chunk of your rocket. Starship takes it to the next level. So what's the plan there? So, so Starship really takes it to a whole new level. They have all sorts of engines, fuel compartments, and everything else that allows them to carry with them everything they need to land on, for instance, the moon, vertically take off from the moon, hop back to Earth, and vertically land here again. Now, we're, we're only testing this one stage at a time one silo at a time is the way it looks but these rockets are essentially giant silver tubes of fuel with fully steerable engines and their ability to nail the fully steerable is really where they shine they have at the top of each stage, these little thrusters that keep them upright, and at the bottom, they can steer their 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 bottom engines as well. And through all of this, they can prevent themselves from spinning. They can prevent themselves from tilting, and they do this in such a fuel efficient way that they can go there and come yeah. back again. Um, and that's right. Just and so at this point, SpaceX still they they reuse their first stage rocket for a significant cost savings, but they still have to ditch their their upper stage, uh, you know, the kick stage. But they can catch their and fairings. Then they're now catching their, their fairings. But the, um, the magic of the Starship will be, as you said, that they will be able to reuse that upper stage of the rocket fully. Um, as a as a two I do want to go back to the fairings sure. for a moment though because this is the most video game like thing I have ever seen 
in spacecraft development. They have a speedboat. Two of them. That used to, well, yeah. two of them. The, the one that successfully caught used to be called yeah. Mr. Steven. It is now called Miss yeah. Tree. And the first time out after the rename, they zoomed it around in the ocean, caught one of the fairings. And this this is the kind of thing where you kind of expect the Benny Hill music to be playing as they're like, zip, 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 catch it. Um, this is just ludicrous. Well, as Elon here. Musk it's said, awesome as Elon Musk said, you know, the fairings are worth six million dollars it's like watching a pallet of money fall back to earth and not try to catch it and so now they've caught two at the time they were recording again they've caught two of these fairings have two halves of the fairing but not at the same time and now they've got now that they've starting to nail the the one catch they've got the second boat and so the plan is they're going to catch both fairings and reuse them so they're getting closer and closer to that fully reusable future um but back to the starship. Okay, yeah. so fine. So what are the, I mean, I guess the question is like in your mind, I'm sure people are like, well, fine. You know, you reuse the first stage thing propulsively lands on its landing, on its launch pad or lands on a barge in the ocean. Why is the top stage so much more complicated? Well, it, it becomes a weight issue. You you want to carry as little as with you as possible. And this is why when we send most things back to Earth, we only bring the capsule. In general, when we send things to outer space, we are, uh, to use the Soyuz as one of my favorite examples, they have a lower skirted area attached to the Soyuz capsule, which is where they have things like stowage, um, they stick their space toilet there. And before they bring any of those capsules back down to Earth, they discard all of that. The number of space toilets destroyed by the Russians is truly a thing to behold. And and the reason that they're doing this over and over and over is that's extra weight that they have to figure out how to steer, how to maneuver, how to shield. And to be able to deal with the heat of reentry, the needed maneuver so that you don't burn up, and then the braking, which is currently done with parachutes, you don't want to have that much stuff with you. And by landing a powered landing, not even the shuttle yeah. had a powered landing. The, po the shuttle was a yeah. glider. To have a powered landing, you have to bring all the fuel, all the added weight for the engines, everything with you, which is added weight going up, and then you need to have it coming back or else you run into the, oh shoot, we ran out of fuel before we actually got to the ground, and you crash rather abruptly into the surface. And that's not pleasant for anyone involved. And the other thing about this is it means you just don't have to reconfigure. So currently you launch one way, you enjoy your space toilet, you reconfigure things as needed, and then you come back down in that new configuration. Um, this avoids all of that. There's no back and forth, up and down, moving where you're hanging out. You have everything the entire time. The plan is for the, when the full stack is put together, right? The first, the, the whole thing will launch with the, the first stage, which they're calling the super heavy. And then the second stage, which they're calling the starship on top, the whole thing will launch. The first stage will detach once it's out of fuel, return to the landing pad, to the launch pad for refueling. It should land precisely where it needs to be to take off again. 
the the upper stage, the starship will fly into orbit, do whatever it's got to do, as you said, go to the moon, orbit, take people, you know, to the space station. And then it will need to come back through the atmosphere, which is we saw with horrible results, how dangerous the atmosphere is with the Columbia disaster, land beside the launch pad. And then they'll use a crane, stack it back up, refuel the top, and away they'll go again. And and I, I think we need to leave room for them to say, hey, we're trying to get to this particular object that requires a whole lot of extra fuel to take off. So we're going to land on a barge in the ocean. But the thing is, they know how to do that. The real motivation to land on land is to avoid um, salt. Seawater yeah. is highly corrosive. When they land on barges, they get extra corrosion from the splash, the mist, the fog, all of that. Landing on land is just, well, less corrosive. So what will be the, if they pull this off, what will this save? What will this, how will this change things? Oh, so I don't even know where to start. Price. Uh, cost yeah price is really the big deal going to space right now well first of all space is hard but space is also expensive which means that there's lots of experiments that we can't do just because it's too expensive there's lots of uh, materials that we can't develop in gravity that we know we can develop in the microgravity of space but it's too expensive to get our chemicals to space, do the manufacturing there, and then bring things back. So from manufacturing to research to tourism, there's always going to be rich people wanting to go to space. Uh, this starts to make all those things more accessible. Now, it's unlikely to enter us into that new TWA age of go where you want, when you want on vacation. If you're a normal everyday person but it does start to get us to well the more people we get in orbit it's also going to have a societal effect we know about the overview effect from astronauts where as they look down on earth they realize oh oh wow our world is so tiny so fragile yeah. so small and by getting the people who are in power around the world and who control resources around the world to see our world with this new perspective, there's also going to be societal effects that we can't even begin to imagine. Um, maybe the first two we need to send up are actually Bezos and Musk. <laughs> right. Um, well, I think both of them uh, would love to to take a flight on their on their rockets once they're safe. Um, but I mean, I've heard the people say that it could bring down the price of launches by a factor of ten to a factor of a hundred yeah, expectation. So right now, uh, traditional rockets are on the order of about $10,000 per pound to launch into space. Uh, a trip on a Falcon nine brings that price down into the couple of thousand dollars, uh, a little cheaper. If you go with a, with a Falcon heavy launch, it's thought that the the super the the starship will bring the price down onto the order of a couple of hundred dollars per kilogram, maybe even below one hundred dollars per kilogram. And the the hilarious thing about this is, in fact, that price is cheaper than people used to estimate for space elevators. 
And since space elevators are really complex to build, and we don't yet know how to do this, um, yay yeah. for reusable rockets. And one of the big factors that makes it so hard to figure out just how low the price will go is we have Chinese companies like Link Space that have already managed to do three successful hops of the same rocket. And they haven't made suborbit or even orbit yet. But the more companies we have doing this, the more competition there is, and the more innovation is going to be driven. And that also has the potential to lower costs. Just figuring out how to effectively get the uh, manufacturing of the rockets. So it's not just the cost of a given rocket, it's the cost of the the whole, well, assembly line that makes that rocket. So there's going to be price costs that come in getting more efficient at building the rockets, price cuts that come from getting more efficient at reusing the rockets. And, well, yeah, we don't know. Just what the lower limit on price just will turn And I know a lot of people, when they're starting to hear about these rockets launching, you know, more launches, cheaper launches, what about the environment? Um, there's, there's some, there's some yeah. good, there's a bit of good news though with the, with both what SpaceX is doing and with what Blue Origin is doing, they're doing methane rockets. So methane is a chemical that is a potent greenhouse gas but in fact you can create it right out of the atmosphere so you use solar energy you can you can turn water and carbon dioxide into methane so in theory and methane breaks down under ultraviolet right light. but in theory these rockets will be carbon neutral they will be generating their rocket fuel right at the launch pad pulling it right out of the atmosphere and then turning it into rocket fuel. And in fact, I wish that airplanes would do that because in theory, airplanes can use uh, methane as a fuel as well. So it would be great to see that that whole technology push forward to the point that all uh, air travel is carbon neutral. The, the, this is one of those things where we keep learning we don't fully understand our own atmosphere in uh, always the negative direction and since these rockets do relocate where atoms are at different heights in our atmosphere um it's yeah i'm going to be more cautious on this yes. one but the using methane is definitely the direction to be going early models looking at um standard uh locks systems uh, actually had some pretty devastating impacts on our atmosphere because they were putting things back at elevations in the atmosphere that were very bad for the greenhouse effect. So hopefully we're getting better over time. Hopefully we're getting better at modeling over time. And the other thing is that by getting more fuel efficient on the rockets, by being able to launch heavier payloads with lower impact, well, we're gonna. It's it's essentially the Tesla of outer space. Yeah. Um, carry more impact. So less. let's just you know before we wrap up this, let's talk a, just a bit about what people are going to see unfold over the next few months and and years because we really are at a bit of a turning point for this whole whole process right now. So. Um, we, as we mentioned, we've watched the Starhopper, which was the first the mark the first prototype, which was really just a little water tower with one. Uh, Raptor engine underneath, and it did two hops, one very short, one that was really cool. 
what comes next? What's their plan? Well, what's, what's particularly cool with Starhopper is they now have two sites, one in Florida and one in Texas. And they're essentially racing against each other doing incremental innovation where they develop something new, test it. If it works, they share it with the other folks. And this constant innovation, try and test, try and test. Um, we don't know how fast you can innovate when you're not worried about failure along the way and accept that failure is part of developing new ideas. This is radically different from what we've seen from things like the ULA Consortium. Uh, I am kind of betting that we're going to start seeing some of the old aerospace getting their contracts yeah. canceled as as SpaceX basically says, thump, here it is, and is able to launch heavier and heavier things at lower and lower costs. Now, this unfortunately is going to have impacts on all the spacecraft that are currently under development that we're planning to launch on these already paid for um, on these already paid for ULA rockets. So um, I think there's going to be a period of epic confusion as the landscape radically changes. Uh, I think that we're going to start to see basically shaming of companies that don't yeah. reuse. Uh, the way Electron was like, well, we're going to be reusable now was awesome, but definitely had an air of, well, yeah. everyone else is doing we're it. We're going to do what everyone yeah. else is doing. Uh, and, and that public shaming of non-reusability, I think, is going to be the most amusing part as a spectator. So the next big event, I think we're going to see the Mark. So they've got these, these you mentioned these two facilities. They've got their Mark 1 Starhoppers, which are pretty much full-scale mock-ups of the of the first of the Starship. They're a little smaller, but they're going to launch uh, in late September, like just a couple of weeks is the plan to start some into the multi-kilometer altitude and the thinking is is that they will actually launch orbital by 2020 or even 2021 and and while it it isn't the advances in reusability uh blue origin is looking with their new shepherd to launch human beings before the end of this year and we're still waiting to see if uh, the Falcon is going to be able to launch with human beings this year. And it's not called off yeah. yet. Yeah, they had that explosion uh, over the summer. Yeah. Um, so that was a that was a yeah. bit of a setback. But yeah, the plan they did a they did a test fire of the of the SpaceX, the Crew Dragon, successfully just a, a last week. So I think they're they're moving forward to being able to actually launch human beings. So uh, this is definitely going to be a topic that we will come back to. But I, you know, it, it and it's obviously been a theme in many of our episodes as we've been been going along. But we just wanted to. To, to bring it back and and sort of see where we are along that pathway. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about it again if Starship does truly launch with the full with the full stack. And and I just want to acknowledge that while we've focused on SpaceX, it's not just SpaceX. There are multiple Chinese companies. I mentioned one. Uh, Avatar is being put together by uh, India, who also has their reusable launch vehicle, TDP program. Uh, this is a multinational t 
time of everyone yes. getting on the reusability bandwagon. Um, and here's to hoping that everyone starts live yes, streaming please. it because this it's stuff so is just exciting. fun yeah, to watch. Absolutely. Uh, before we go, Pamela, do you have any patrons to thank? So uh, we are here by the grace of you. Uh, Astronomy Cast is produced by Susie Murph, who does more than just edit together the sound. Uh, she also herds me, herds Fraser, gets everything posted. Uh, we're working on planning trips. Uh, we just got back from Fourth uh, of July weekend going out to Joshua Tree. All this myriad of random stuff. Well, you let us pay her, which in turn lets her kid go to college. Um, so you are making the world a little bit better and a little bit more educated every time you support us on Patreon. And I want us to, to thank just a set of those people. Um, so I'm going to thank Jordan Young, Burry Gowan, Ramji Amanthu, Andrew Polstra, David Trog, Brian Cagle, the giant nothing, and Laura Kettleson. So thank you, Pamela, and thank you, everyone, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by the Planetary Science Institute, Fraser Kane, and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at Astronomy Cast. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast, like us on Facebook, and watch us on YouTube. We record our show live on YouTube every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, or 1900 UTC. Our intro music was provided by David Joseph Wesley. The outro music is by Travis Searle, and the show was edited by Susie Murph.